This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Where Freedom Starts, Sex, Power, Violence, Hashtag Me Too. It's a Verso report available as a free ebook that you can find at versobooks.com. The powerful wave of rage fueling Me Too has finally refocused public attention on sexual harassment and sexual violence, and starkly posed questions of power, of feminism, and of politics. How do we define violence? How do we discuss and experience sex? Who gets to tell stories of sexual assault? And who gets to be heard? How impoverished is our language for describing the intersection of power, desire, and violence? What is the relationship between individual struggles and collective protest? What do we do with the abusers? In short, this moment has recalled a much older question. How do we get free? In this collection of new and previously published writings, leading activists, feminists, scholars, and writers describe the shape of the problem, chart the forms refusal has taken, and outline possible solutions. Importantly, they also describe the longer histories of organizing against sexual violence that the Me Too moment obscures. Among working women, women of color, undocumented women, imprisoned women, poor women, among those who don't conform to traditional gender roles, and discern from those practices a freedom that is more than notional, but embodied and uncompromising. Contributors to this book include Tarana Burke and Elizabeth Adetiba, Lauren Berlant, T.D. Bhattacharya, Stephanie Kuntz, Melissa Jira Grant, Laura Kipnis, Gabriel Thompson, Larissa Pham, Alex Press, Jane Ward, and Tarian L. Williamson. Where Freedom Starts, Sex, Power, Violence, Hashtag Me Too. A Verso report available as a free ebook that you can find at versobooks.com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Student debt is obviously a burden on individuals, sometimes a financially devastating one. But it is also part and parcel of a broader transformation in American political economy and how that political economy is lived intergenerationally in families. Financial planning has become the centerpiece of American family life, requiring parents, if they are to be deemed good parents, to strategically save for their children's higher education from basically the moment those children are born. It's part of a system that reaffirms the conventional notion that poor people are poor due to their own failures, and that forces a large number of those children who can to rely on parental support deep into their 20s. My guest today is Caitlin Zaloom a professor of anthropology at NYU who researches the culture of economics and finance and who has written some brilliant work on this subject. Before we get this episode rolling, please support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. We don't paywall any of our episodes, and so we rely on your voluntary support. And you can offer that support at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We really appreciate it. Okay, 
Here's my interview with Caitlin Zaloom, a cultural anthropologist at NYU, the author of Out of the Pits, Traders and Technology from Chicago to London, published by University of Chicago Press, who is currently completing a book about family and U.S. household finance that will be published by Princeton University Press. Caitlin Zaloom, welcome to The Dig. Glad to be here. To set the table, explain the scope of student debt in the U.S. today. How much debt is there? How has it grown over time? And how is it spread out? In other words, what sort of debt loads are people carrying as individuals? That is a very interesting question because there has been so much change. The total student debt in the United States today is at least $1.4 trillion. And I say at least because $1.4 trillion is the number uh, for the student loans that run through the federal government. Other kinds of loans also go into paying for higher education, both undergraduate and graduate school, but they're actually much more difficult to uh, figure out. So, for instance, if, if a parent takes out a home equity line, it's hard to trace whether or not they're using it for education. But that $1.4 trillion, even that amount alone, is spread out over uh, a, a very differing group of people. So actually, the, the, the students that carry the most debt are actually graduate students. Graduate students oftentimes carry very large loads of debt. For instance, we've all heard about the medical students that graduate with hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, that is included in the $1.4 trillion, um, but it's a very obviously different category than the undergraduate students uh, in the United States, states who also carry debt um, on an average of in, in, in the high $20,000, um, just below $30,000 on average uh, for undergraduate debt-holding students. One more piece of table setting before we get any further. You're an anthropologist, meaning that your research is based on ethnographic fieldwork. Explain what that is for listeners who aren't familiar with the methodology and what it looks like when you're studying things like finance and student loans. And also, if you could explain for listeners who don't know what sort of questions anthropologists are trying to answer compared to, say, other social scientists. Yeah, so anthropologists, um, and in the public eye, might, it might not be obvious that an anthropologist would study finance, but that has been what um, I've done and, and what um, many other anthropologists are now doing. Um, we study things uh, most often from an ethnographic perspective, which means that we're interested in, for instance, how the financial economy um, shapes the way that people um, live their family lives, how they understand things like risk or their work lives or, um, or how they think about the future, for instance. Those are all questions that anthropologists 
uh, have asked about the financial economy, um, among other things as well. Um, so we, we most often start from the perspective of people that are either working within or living within the, the system of finance. And that's very much what I do in this project. I take the perspective of the families that are uh, facing the problem of sending a kid to college, and I try to understand what the financial system looks like, the student finance system looks like from their perspective, which is a very different one than, say, uh, an, an economist who might be really interested in aggregate outcomes. So, um, one question that economists who are concerned about this issue uh, pose is what is the effect of student debt on the future incomes and the future work lives and the future consumption of students who carry uh, this burden? But anthropologists are, are um, interested in that question, but it, that it comes from a different, uh, a, a different kind of take than the one that we ourselves try to uh, tr try to develop, which is really from the perspective of of the people who live with these financial tools and and these financial problems. What anthropologists are trying to do is explain and interpret culture by which they mean something different from what we think of as culture in terms of the arts and culture section of a newspaper. Absolutely. Well, we're, we're interested in the relationship between these structuring forces like uh, like the the what what I call the student finance complex, this sort of amalgamation of tools um, and and policies that people have to live with, uh, and their kind of cultural conceptions about what is the right thing to do, the moral thing to do. That's what taking a cultural perspective means to me and and to many other anthropologists as well. Cool. Very well explained and precisely why I pursued that major as an undergraduate. Um, yeah. how, how does student debt compare to other forms of consumer debt, like credit card debt and, of course, compared to housing debt, which brought down the global economy a decade ago? Is, is it possible that student debt, like housing debt did, might pose a systemic risk to the economic order today? Um, the, the systemic risk question is an interesting one. I, I mean, I I think no, it doesn't pose the same kind of systemic risk, um, mostly because the uh, the organization that holds the most student debt is the federal government, um, and so it's actually relatively contained. Um, I mean, I say relatively because it is it is yeah. not neatly contained, but but it doesn't have quite the systemic um, entanglements that the housing market did. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, that student debt is not an issue that, that we should be concerned about. Uh, since 2008, it is the form of consumer debt that has been rising the most steadily. And, 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 and by steadily, I mean precipitously. Um, so 
pretty much since 2000, the student debt uh, loads have been climbing very steeply, whereas actually after 2008, uh, many Americans began to you know, deleverage is the term. They, they started to, uh, to stop using credit in the way that they had been before the crisis. And I mean, in part because they couldn't get it. Um, but, but, uh, but also, uh, prioritize, prioritizing paying off the debts that they did have. That was true for pretty much all forms of debt except student debt. So while all the other forms of debt went down after 2008, student debt continued to climb. And that that relationship, I think, is very interesting. Now, recently, there has been uh, another um, uptick in other kinds of consumer debt, um, particularly credit card debt. Uh, but it isn't, it isn't um, nearly as significant as, uh, as what's been happening with, with student loans. How should we think about the, the role that student debt plays in financialized American capitalism today, both in terms of the raw economics of it, but also in terms of, of ideology and that, that, that cultural question that you're looking at? There are a lot of different ways to, to think about student debt in, in that landscape. And the, the kind of, there's, a, there's a kind of um, strictly economic one, which gets a lot of attention, which is the problem um, of the the way that debt reshapes the future for uh, for the students themselves who hold the debt, um, and by this I mean that 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 particularly economists and policymakers worry that if students graduate with debt, they um, don't buy houses as much, they don't buy cars as much, and they get married later, and all and of those later. things. Babies later, everything later, um, and uh, and and all of that uh, has a real impact on uh, on our kind of consumer-oriented economy. Um, so that's that's one obvious uh, that's one obvious thing that gets talked about very frequently um, that student debt is is a drag on consumption, but. But uh, there are many different um, ways to, to think about this. I mean, we can think about how student debt um, plays into making uh, certain kinds of workers, for instance, that that when students graduate with debt, they have already a very serious obligation that they have to pay back a, a, a loan that shapes what they believe are their choices as far as uh, as far as work goes. Um, so for instance, I, I mean, I even have a student and I tell her story uh, in, in the book that I'm writing now. Um, one of my very brightest students who came into my office, um, you know, in tears, of nearly about to graduate and telling me that she was about to take a job that she felt like really compromised her own, um, her, her own Edu educational values and her own political values um, because it made a lot of money. And that, uh, that job was in helping companies to outsource factories to other, um, other areas of the, of the world. And now she'd been studying um, over the course of her education. In her case, that very poignant example that you, that you mentioned, it's sort of oh, a systemic way idealistic young people can be I don't know, like taken hostage by the system. <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, so so that that it does. I mean, what I would in some ways um, 
try not to 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 assign blame and like that there 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 are a lot of unintentional consequences but this is it is clearly a consequence about um how debt shapes the way that people think about or these these students think about the think about their futures um there's no question about that they have to they have to uh, be concerned about paying their debts and they are concerned about paying their their debts and this really cuts against another value that uh that we as as America um, give them about the role they should be playing as young adults. And that conflicting role is that they are supposed to be making themselves into into new kinds of people, into the people who are going to make the future, who are going to invent things that that we, um, you know, the, the older generations can't even imagine. So that idea that that young people are supposed to be both inventing the future but being constrained by debt in their real lives is a kind of conflict that I saw over and over again during the course of my research. Yeah, I I think your your pushback about the way I phrased it is well is well put. I think it's maybe a way to think about it is it's it's less something that in a conspiratorial way functions for the status quo order, though it does sometimes function for it, um, but more of an effect of the, the the broader contradictions and tensions within that order. Is that is that fair? That is absolutely fair, and and I would really stress that our student finance complex really holds many different, very contradictory moral messages. Um, and that, that this, this thing, the student finance um, a system that is made up of, you know, loans from the federal government, maybe private loans, um, you know, assistance from universities, family contributions, that this, this thing is, uh, is the product of um, – now four decades, more than four decades of uh, of policy initiatives that have that have been built up and which have themselves each different kinds of political morality. So there there are certainly elements of the student of the student finance complex that are uh, that 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 would um, that their designers would have wanted there to be this kind of effect of making students into uh, market actors who would be most concerned about making money in the private market. Um, but there are also um, there are also designers uh, of those policies who are interested in allowing this younger generation to uh, to experiment and to and to make a future that that would be um, fairer and more open to everyone. So those contradictions are really built into the into the system. One argument that I've seen that I'm curious on your thoughts on is that one driver of student debt is higher ed being sold to people as a way to make money in an economy where there is this purported skills gap that's always being talked about, i.e. the the notion that the real problem in the economy is that jobs are open, but people don't have the training to do them. And that has ideological consequences, obviously, in the sense of it being embedded in this broader idea that 
individuals are responsible for solving their own personal economic problems by acquiring more education. Do you think that that's played a a, a role in people taking on debt that they can't afford to pay down? You know, I, I think that from a policy perspective, that that makes a lot of um, uh, sense to to kind of levy that that criticism. I think particularly uh, at the kind of lower end of the higher education market, uh, particularly around. Uh, for-profit universities and, um, and and kind of at the community college level, there yeah. is there is an idea about people should be getting skills and they should be cultivating these skills in these particular locations. And of course, for-profit universities are some of the um, some of the greatest beneficiaries of government largesse uh, when it comes to student uh, when it comes to student loans. The I mean the, the for-profit universities really make their money from the loans that students bring to the to, to with them to college that's a very important kind of um criticism to make that that the that the students are being um solicited by these places, these for-profit universities, function on that promise that they will give students uh, skills that, that they need to enter into, into jobs in, in, the, in the marketplace, but then don't graduate them um, at rates that, that reflect uh, what, what nonprofit institutions do at all and you know, almost complete disregard for that. For, for the fact that they've failed the students uh, to whom they've made those promises. And I think you might have been about to say, but maybe I'm wrong, but before you went into the thing about for-profit, I think you might have been about to go into, but for like individuals, higher ed can make a lot of sense. Yes, higher education generally, so so does make a lot of sense. Higher education does make a lot of sense for individuals. The, uh, the, the statistics show that for... For students who graduate with a four-year degree, there is absolutely a great benefit. Uh, in fact, that having a four-year degree uh, can really seem like the dividing line that might be most significant in America today, that having a four-year degree gives you access to good jobs and an even supports your marriage. Um, having a college education uh, really is the, the, the clear path to the, a kind of middle-class stability that was much more common 30, 30 years ago, but which is not, um, not necessarily common uh, today for anyone who doesn't have a four-year degree. So student, um, so, so student debt does pay off for those who manage to graduate. For those who don't manage to graduate, it's a, it's 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 a very significant um, drag. Makes me think again about these these contradictions and tensions that we've been talking about on this individual level. It totally makes a lot of sense to get a four year college degree and it will improve one's is very likely to improve one's economic standing and all other kinds of outcomes as well but on the systematic level it functions in this nefarious political way by creating this persuasive narrative that 
that people are responsible for either their their fail their economic failures or their successes, and that that obscures structural and systemic economic issues. I think that that is uh, is very well put. That that the and and there's an essential moralizing quality to this um, this student finance system that we have today. Where which really sends the message that uh, that individuals and their families together uh, are responsible for uh, for paying for college and for you know cultivating the the talents of their young people. So one thing that that I think is very Im- important to to think about is is the role of the of the family um, in all this because we tend to we tend to think about uh, that you know neoliberal capitalism devolves responsibilities onto individuals. But I think the student the student finance example is really powerful because we can see there all the ways that it isn't really the individual but it's the household and the family that bears the responsibility together. Um, And our student finance system emphasizes that for all the students who are uh, going into college from within their their parents' household. Uh, their parents are required to uh, to give information to the federal government uh, in order to access aid. Um, I'm sure you and many of your listeners have dealt with the the FAFSA form, um, and so on that FAFSA form is the is the information that that we should be looking at to see just how much this is really not necessarily about individuals, but about households and families bearing responsibility together. Yeah, your, your research on this question is really fascinating. You write about how the American student loan system kind of quite invisibly get brazenly um, depends upon and maybe also helps create a certain conception and structure of American families in terms of how generations are expected to relate to one another financially and also in terms of how families think about their responsibility to plan ahead. Can you tell me a little bit about this planning and your argument about how that's changed over the past half century and also why that matters in terms of understanding this country? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I think that it's a it's it's important to understand um, because it's so embedded in what it means to be middle class within the context of the financial economy. So, since the 1980s, there has been a precipitous rise in the cost of sending children to college. And over the course of that same period of time, it has become more necessary than ever to send kids to college in order to solidify a middle-class identity. Um, And as a third strand, during that time, there has been a clear policy shift which has assigned families the responsibility for paying for that education. Now, um, that that means that that middle class Americans are required, um, based on these kinds of policy initiatives and the morality they contain, to start thinking about the problem of paying for college pretty much the minute their children are born. Now, let me give you an example of that. So I live in New York State, and New York State, like 
all the other states, has something called a 529 plan. And a 529 plan, it has that great name because it's the, the, the section of the tax code that it's associated with. But the 529 plan is a tax advantage investment uh, program that allows, um, that allows parents to start putting away money um, as soon as their kid has a social security number. Uh, and on the website of the 529 plan for New York State, there are quite a number of adorable babies. <laughs> and, and this is... Um, please tell me that they're wearing little... Minority please tell me that they're in caps and gowns. <laughs> Uh, they're, 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 no, they're, they're, they're even too little for, for that kind of fiction. But, you know, one is in a swing. Um, one is, like, crawling up to a computer screen. Um, they're, they're adorable babies. Uh, but, but the message is very clear. It is the responsibility of families to start thinking about that problem of sending their kids to college the minute their kid is born. Um, and because college education is so important to middle class status today that planning is becomes central to the middle class family itself that idea that that middle class responsibilities of parents to their kids are need to be organized around financial planning and how does this compare to the post world war 2 model that you write about so the post world war 2 model is different and i don't want to um, to Kind of pretend that that was the way to go. There were all kinds of reasons why that, uh, like for instance, that it would have been much less likely that I could have gone to college, for instance. Um, and uh, you know, I, I mean, not to mention um, the, the the exclusion of of minorities from higher education. So I'm, I, I, but there was a predictability in that period that allowed young people to who could to get college educations and not to worry too much about the future. So take, for instance, the GIs that came back from World War II. The GIs that could take advantage of the college uh, portion of the GI Bill um, had their tuition paid by the VA and, uh, and also had access to uh, to home loans, which took the pressure off their their young adulthood, um, so that they could actually think about the decisions that they needed to make in their most immediate environment. Decisions like, who am I going to marry, and what kind of work is the best suited to me? What kind of work is needed in my community? Those are questions that are much much easier to focus on if you're not constantly worried about the future. So that's a very, that's a very big difference between the, the post-war order and, and today. And it's embedded this certainty established by the, the GI Bill is embedded in the post-war period in an economic system that provided certainty to especially white men in all kinds of ways. Yes, absolutely. It it provided a lot of a lot of certainty to white 
men um, from the post-war period, you know, into the into the 1970s. Um, at which point it started to uh, un- unravel, as we all know. Um, but I think it's also really important to recognize that the Higher Education Act, which is the foundation of our student finance system in this country, was was signed in 1965 in the heart of that period of certainty. Now, that the, the Higher Education Act uh, had within it um, very explicit goals of helping people who hadn't been able to access college gain access to it through uh, loans, which were... Um, which we now today know as direct loans, and and also um, for lower income people, uh, basic grants, which are now called Pell Grants, um, and that expanding the opportunity to go to college was really at the center of the Higher Education Act, and we continue to live with that that quite dramatic, important, and positive legacy is part of our student finance system. It's not all of it, but it still remains there. And I think that it, that, that, that kind of commitment to creating um, the possibility for young people to go to college and, and to, to explore and to kind of figure out what our next what our next step into the future is going to be that all remains very powerful um potential in both college and in our student finance system i I think that we have to find it again but i think that it's still very much there a a quick aside to listeners if uh, i think a, a a good way to get a sense of just what this kind of optimistic certainty look like, how powerful it is in a way that's just profoundly alien to our political culture today to look up LBJ's Great Society speech from 1964 at the University of Michigan. It's just like it's something from like another planet. Or even, I would add, LBJ's speech on signing the Higher Education Act in, in 1965, which he did at, um, at uh, Texas State University, which was his alma mater, um, which he graduated from as a low-income student. I mean, he wow. really emphasizes in that speech how important it is to give access to higher education to low-income kids. And also that in the Higher Education Act, there are provisions not, not only for low-income kids who you know, might be presumed to be white, like LBJ, but also um, particularly African-American students and, and African-American higher education institutions, the, the, the HBCUs. Yeah, and I think that's so important to underline how much the political ferment at that time was really about finally expanding the New Deal promise to people who'd been excluded from it. It didn't work out that way in a lot of ways in the long run. But you write that then and now, one thing that's in common between the two periods is that the valorization of financial planning, and we touched on this earlier, one thing it does is to justify itself by providing this rationale for why poor people are poor and why affluent people are affluent. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how planning culture assigns responsibility for success and failure in society? Yes. I I mean, planning culture is is an enormously kind of um, 
foundational way of understanding this this problem of of paying for college and so many other things. But one, but the the kind of the most important thing I would have um, people understand about planning culture is that it requires stability. Planning requires stability. There is a promise that planning is going to produce stability, but actually the only way to plan is if you already have it. And that is so very important. So for for instance, uh, in the book that I'm writing, I profile a family who's actually done incredibly well uh, with, with planning. Um, a Michigan family who uh, who kind of moved up through the the educational system. Um, the mom and the family is a nurse. Of da- the dad and the family is a kind of um, mid level manager at, at, at a hospital. Um, but it took in order for them to send their kids to college. Um, grandparents who had good steady jobs in the Michigan economy, they, they were teachers. Um, and then parents who had good steady jobs in the Michigan economy, um, who were in, in nursing and in the hospital sector, uh, as well as a reliable and very strong set of higher education choices that the state of Michigan has provided to its residents. Now, if any of those people had been in the auto industry, it would have been a completely different story. The, yeah. the way that this, uh, this family succeeded in, in planning and sending um, three generations to college was because nothing went wrong. There, were, there, there was um, a, a, a very strong, um, steady marriage in the grandparents' generation. They did, they did well enough to open an A&W root beer stand and to um, you know, use the, the proceeds from that to support their daughter and son. Their daughter went to nursing school uh, and that, you know, that, that they were able to, to then um, both the grandparents and the parents invest in planning, invest in, in fact, a 529 plan uh, in, and to reap the rewards of that when the grandchild generation went to college. So their stability really did make planning possible. But for so many families who whose lives don't look like that, which is actually most families in the United States now, um, that that kind of planning doesn't doesn't lead to the kind of security that uh, that its promoters uh, would would suggest. In fact, what it does instead is to distribute virtue. It says that the people like uh, like the like the Nowicki family that I just described are are virtuous. They they don't. I mean, they they work hard. They don't struggle a lot. They send their kids to to uh, college. The kids are upwardly mobile. All of that very much conforms to a moral notion of upward mobility funded through prudence and planning that valorizes that that family. But for the other families in America who uh, who don't have stable marriages or or who don't have stable jobs, um, planning will not yield that kind of outcome. This dynamic encompasses more than student loans. Uh, you sent me a link to a New York Times article from last February um, with an analysis saying that 
finding that nearly half of 20-somethings get financial help from their parents. And what's there's a lot that's concerning there, um, but what's most concerning is the half that doesn't get that support um, in terms of geographic mobility and social mobility and what it means if poorer parents can't afford to to pay for this new baseline established for young people to get their career established, say by taking an unpaid internship. Mm-hmm. Is it is it right to describe this this uh, this dynamic of parental support in the twenties and the increasing reliance on student loans as as a broader shift in American political economy? And I'm not sure how to phrase it, but maybe like an intensifying privatization of early adulthood economic life via the household that's my that's my best effort so i think that that actually we should be concerned about all of or at least two of the groups involved in this trend of having parents supporting um the the younger people the ninth the, the people in their 20s um in in urban environments after college because uh i mean some of the some of the group that isn't getting help um are in, you know, say banking jobs, they don't need help. We don't uh, need yeah. to worry about mm-hmm. them. But and and some of them have parents who are who who are not well off enough enough to assist them. Um, but also the parents that are that are assisting them um, can be made up of of two different groups as well. One one of whom are very wealthy, and again, you know, that we, we don't need to be concerned about the 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 twenty something worth working for an arts organization from a family that makes over two hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars. But the 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 middle class kids, the the kind of I mean, not not the top twenty percent, but just below that, who are getting assistance from their parents. Those parents are taking away from their own stability um, in the future. So when we think about how difficult it it has been for 20-somethings to really get a a foothold in their work lives, Uh, I think that we also need to be thinking about the impact of that in the future for the the parents, and that this is actually true also for college, because when parents pay more than they they can afford – for college, it also means that they're compromising their their own future security. So one thing that we know, for instance, is that uh, is that the the baby boomers do not have enough money um, to rec- to retire in any way that is um, that is consonant uh, with their working lives. And I'm, I'm talking about uh, on average here. But a lot of different inputs have gone into that, um, including um, paying for their kids to go to college and helping and helping um, and helping stabilize uh, them uh, in their younger lives. That's an extremely important point. I think that you just made in terms of needing to think about this debt crisis for young people in terms of student debt, but also maybe this debt that doesn't get repaid to their parents to to what's the term like take off in the mm-hmm. in their in their 20s and how that's connected to the the retirement crisis and the fact that all these retirees are out there in their RVs working for Amazon yes i think it's really important to take the intergenerational perspective i think that it, it 
we, we don't do it enough. Um, it's actually quite hard to find data that crosses generational lines, that takes a large-scale kind of aggregate perspective, the kind that, that economists would generate, which is one of the reasons why I think that um, both, both anthropological and sociological work on this subject is so important because we are really able to get inside families to understand what the struggles look like from within rather than through relying on um, administrative data as as economists do uh, around things like student loan and then tax returns. And, and of course, that's very, very important, but it limits the way that we think about this, uh, this student finance problem. And uh, from my perspective, we really need to be looking at it holistically from the perspective of the families that have to live with it. Let me give you one more example about this. So we, we tend to divide uh, between public and private universities when we talk about the student loan crisis, but from the perspective of family life, oftentimes these are simply a continuum because siblings can be in, in each at the same time. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I'm thinking about another another family in my study who has, you know, two kids at the university, um, two, two kids at the University of Illinois and one kid at a, 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 an expensive Catholic school in a neighboring state. So from their perspective, the difference between public and private is negligible. It, it is all about their own household income stream and the kinds of obligations that those parents feel um, to their kids individually and to their kids as, as, a, as a group, I mean, as their, as their family, um, that those responsibilities are really what they're trying to fulfill first and foremost, rather than, um, rather than trying to get any specific outcome. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book that might be of interest is The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Recent years have seen an explosion of protest against police brutality and repression. The conversation about how to respond and improve policing has focused on accountability, diversity, training, and community relations. Unfortunately, these reforms will not produce results. The core of the problem must be addressed, and that is the nature of modern policing itself. Broken windows practices, the militarization of law enforcement, and the dramatic expansion of the role of police have created a mandate for officers that must be rolled back. This book shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, and even public safety. Alex Vitale demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. In contrast, there are places where the robust implementation of policing alternatives, such as legalization, restorative justice, and harm reduction, has led to reduction in crime, spending, and injustice. The best solution to bad policing may be an end to policing as we know it. 
The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Out now from Verso Books. One thing that that seems important about what you're doing in terms of analyzing and exposing these these intergenerational relationships of, of, of precarity is that we have this politics that really thrives on pitting generations against each other in terms yeah. of like Fox News, like riling up the olds. <laughs> Right, riling up, riling up the older, or or riling up the the youngs to be angry about what the about what the older generation has you know done to the done to the world. I mean, the um, that I mean from the from the perspective of student finance, what what I see overwhelmingly is that you know parents want. Uh, very classically kind of American things for their kids. And I'm talking about that, the, the middle class parents that I work with most, most centrally. Um, they, they want their kids uh, to be able to realize their potential, whatever that means for them. They want their kids to be able to to try to discover what they're good at, and they want their kids to be able to contribute. Um, now, none of them know what this what this really means, because in fact, uh, we can't and shouldn't really be able to know what it means as a parental generation. That's up for these young people to discover and create themselves. Uh, and so, when parents um, commit themselves to to paying for college and to uh, to sacrificing for that and to supporting their uh, their young adults when they graduate, it's all in the service to that uh, that that set of very American obligations. What does this all mean in terms of the most emailed NYT article style hand wringing over over millennials and their perceived um, idiosyncrasies and, and failures? <laughs> I work with millennials all the time as a, as a college professor, um, and I, I rarely recognize what, uh, what that hand-wringing seems to um, – seems to display. I, I, uh, I mean, so, so not only do I work with, with millennials, um, and now this next generation as a, as a researcher, but, but I see them in the classroom all the time and they seem to me to be in very good shape intellectually. They're curious and they're critical and they're entering into a landscape, which we don't understand and which they don't understand neither. And so I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the concern with the, um, with millennial uh, fragility, for instance, um, is, is really about their own very perceptive take on the fact that, that, that they are going to be um, in their 20s in a world where people are telling them that AI is going to come and take all the jobs, um, where, they, where the 2008 crisis um, has rendered the economy also very uncertain in, in, in different ways, even if it now seems to be um, turning, turning around. Um, and, uh, and they're obviously graduating into a political landscape that is more volatile than we've seen in a very, very long time. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 seems, it seems logical to me. And, you know, my, uh, what I know is that I deeply admire most of my students. 
even though the kind of hand-wringing over millennials is a pervasively mainstream phenomena, it's it's politics are very conservative, even if cryptically so, because conservatives always point to individual and family dysfunction to make their case for everything from welfare reform to criminal justice policy. And it's ideologically very powerful and I think telling that this kind of millennial shaming has made its way so far outside the the bounds of where one might expect to see it, like the National Review. It is very conservative. And and it's also, I have to say, somewhat um, surprising to me in a way, or at least it displays um, a, a strand of, of, of American conservatism that is, is really deeply in tension with this idea of young people wanting, wanting needing um, to define the future and that we as America value that as a central part of our own um, American identity. So the, the, uh, the historian Paula Fass, I think, writes about this um, incredibly well. And she traces that idea uh, all the way back to the revolution and shows the way that this idea that 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 the younger generation shouldn't be like their parents is, in fact, a kind of centrally quintessentially American thing. And that that our parenting strategies from the from the revolution forward, if people had the freedom to do it, was designed to create an open future for children so that they could be different from their parents. They should be different from their parents. And hopefully they would be better than their parents, both in economic terms and in moral terms. And I think that we see this this kind of discourse in the exaltation around innovation today. Uh, But for some reason, we don't really apply that to our young people, which, you know, I think that we should certainly give them the kinds of freedoms that we allow to Silicon Valley. Tell me a bit about how your argument fits into the longer and larger tradition of feminist critiques of of capitalism, particularly those looking at the obscured and essential role played by households in social reproduction. Yes, I I think that it's that it's critically important to recognize how much the household has is is now implicated in uh, in financial capitalism and specifically around um, the student finance issue um, even the kind of critiques of neoliberals neoliberal capitalism oftentimes look to the the individual um, as the uh, as the site of neoliberal or financialized responsibility. But I think that we need to take a much closer look at what actually happens um, under financial things like financial contracts, like, like student debt. Um, and when we do, we're going to recognize what is, uh, what is otherwise completely unrecognized, um, in this case, kind of affective labor, the emotional labor and the labor of responsible parenting that happens in the household. So, so not only do I think that that um, these kind of um, neoliberal financial instruments like, uh, like the student loans as we have them configured today um, seem to 
to kind of focus on the individual, but our criticisms of it take that at face value and that we really need to look beyond the individual and, and, to, and to recognize um, what, what lies behind that individual. Like, for instance, that, it's these, that the family lies behind uh, the student who has to carry uh, this, this student debt. And so like the family in the household is obscured once again. Yes, the fa- exactly. The family in the household has been made invisible again, um, even under a critique of, of financial capitalism. And I think that it's 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 a it's a short step because the, to to get to a more robust criticism that really does recognize the household and the family and unrecognized labor because we have the tools and resources from uh, feminist economic critiques that uh, that even came before the the neoliberal moment and I'm even thinking about. Um, you know, the 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 historians and political theorists, um, you know, of the of the 19 who began writing in the 1980s and who are still writing today. I mean, people like uh, like Nancy Fraser and Nancy Fulbright and Linda Gordon, um, people who are really looking at our uh, our policies and our economy from a feminist perspective to see both how they how they make up the household and even how they use the household as a resource for capitalism itself. I want to ask you about how you see not just social reproduction taking place at present, but the role of nostalgia over past forms of social reproduction, i.e. this post-war period that you write about. What role thinking about that past period plays in the present period because it seems like this nostalgic politics whether it be trumpian reaganite or just republican small town pastoralism in general is often really rooted in these ideas about that mid-century new deal household that that you write about where there's this image both real and imagined of a of a low interest mortgage paid for by a white man's good job secured with education paid for by the GI bill how do you mm-hmm. see how, how do you see the 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 memorialization of that period operating today one thing that i think is really important is to see that that household is still very much embedded in the policies that we promote so for instance the the uh, extension of student aid from the federal government requires um parents to to commit their their income to paper so that that they can be processed now there's a reflection of the family in the in the forms and the requirements that the government has to extend aid and it is it and it is a two parent nuclear household it's one that looks like the the mid-century family that you're alluding to um it and Crucially, it really sees responsibilities as only relating to that nuclear family inside that that nuclear household. So, for instance, if a family um, is responsible, feels themselves responsible, and actually says, say, pays for um, the the the, the 
healthcare or the meals um, for grandparents, that responsibility is not recognized on the form. Um, that responsibility is 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 considered to be effectively uh, one of choice, not of necessity, uh, unless the grandparent has been been declared a dependent, um, which, as you can imagine, would be a, a very extreme um, choice for most families to make. Yeah. Um, so, so it really it really creates the nuclear uh, the nuclear family as the only responsible unit, and that in turn assumes um, a political economy in which all of those individual families um, can be fully responsible for themselves, where they don't have to be helping across generational lines, where they don't have to be helping, um, you know, friends who are uh, chosen family, where they don't have to be sending money to sisters and brothers who need assistance. Um, the, the idea is that each of those nuclear households stands on its own. In terms of your your ethnographic research, how do do you find that people themselves refer back to this imagined what a sociologist I, I recently talked to Jennifer Carlson calls you know M- Mayberry America? <laughs> well, I mean, I think Mayberry America happened for some of their parents. So the way that it comes uh, up within the the interviews that that I've done is really about a reflection on their the 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 grandparents' generations' lives. Now, the um, in in the study uh, on which I'm basing my book, the grandparents are actually not quite baby boomers. They're people who are now um, in their seventies. Uh, which demographers have called the luckiest generation. And they have benefited from basically all of the benefits um, of the 20th century that that we associate with Mayberry America. Um, You know, they were, they were, they, they were likely to have married young, to have bought a home um, early, to have benefited from the rise in housing values, not once, not twice, but three times. Um, you know, they were the beneficiaries of rising stock markets over decades. Um, these, you know, so so the grandparent generation um, of Mayberry America, um, those those people really did set the expectations for their children, who are now, you know, in their late fifties. And who who are the parents of our um, of our college students and and recent graduates today? Moving on to some of your other research on on finance, which really does uh, I'm thinking a lot about after reading your work, touch every corner of American life. And you've looked at religion in churches. Evangelical finance ministries focus on the household budget as a moral project. Um, not exactly in the same way as a budget is conceived of as a moral object in a society in society and politics more generally. But um, you write the budgeting process not only renders the household economic, but also more importantly, renders the economic and economic calculations divine. What are these mm-hmm. ministries? How widespread are they? And what do they reveal about what 
a pretty big swath of the American people learn and think about American capitalism? The ministries that I'm talking about um, are uh, evangelical ministries, financial ministries that started basically in the 1970s. So at the point of course, where uh, where American capitalism is starting to really radically change shape and where people um, are starting to, uh, you know, need help getting their finances together. And like in other situations of crisis, um, you know, evangelicals really saw this as uh, an opportunity to both help people who are in crisis and to evangelize. So there was an opportunity in the in the crisis of of, uh, of American capitalism to reach more more people by helping them solve their household financial problems, and by doing it in a way that would help them understand. God through their household budgeting processes. How do these navigate the the secular and the 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 divine? Do they lead to distinct understandings of of the economy's function from those that prevail outside of the evangelical universe? Well, they look they look a lot the same, but they have a very different kind of orientation. So, I mean, there's very little to distinguish an evangelical budget from a, a budget that any number of um, of household financial advisors um, of a popular sort would uh, would distribute. But in the relationship between evangelical ministers and the people that they're assisting they're able to develop the budget as a way to see God in their household economies. So the ministers and their, the people that they're helping um, look through their budgets to see how God is functioning in the economy and to, and to try to figure out how they can live better according to, um, to biblical precepts. Um, so, for instance, they write down all of the changes in their household income. Um, obviously, you know, they, there is a job, or at least they, they hope there is a job. Um, but, there's, but there are gifts that come um, from, from family members um, or, say, from other parishioners uh, if they're in, an, in a time of crisis, for instance, which are interpreted as God's intervention in their household. Um, and, and changes in the marketplace come to seem like God's interventions. So ultimately, there is an alignment through the budget of the fluctuations um, in, in both the household economy and in the broader economy between, um, between these movements and what God is doing in the world. You've also written about the ethical rules that govern Wall Street, and you found that contrary perhaps to popular belief, there is indeed a code. And it's a traitor code, which, if I remember correctly, is about a pretty sincere belief in the justness of traders' roles in making markets. Can you explain that yeah. and why it's important to develop an analysis of, of financiers' motivations that, that goes beyond greed, which is the typical kind of shorthand on the left? 
I see the ethics of traders, which is expressed in, in many different venues, as being organized around the importance of liquidity. Um, liquidity is essentially the, the principle that at any moment something will be tradable, Some, something will be brought to market to sell and someone else will buy it. Um, so traders themselves really understand making liquidity as the ethical project of their work. Now, they may not think about that every day when they go into um, when they go in to deal in, you know, one stock or another or one derivatives contract or another. But if you ask them to to explain, to justify uh, what it is that they're doing, those are the terms on, on which they they justify it. Um, that liquidity itself is a value. And it is a value in a market society. If if we believe, which um, you know your your listeners may not, but certainly many um, many people uh, on on Wall Street and on the conservative side certainly think this that we live in a market society. Then the then the function of producing those markets, of making things tradable, of making the market work is a central ethical one. And if there's going to be um, the possibility of, of changing this as a kind of central orientation um, for American politics and the, and the American economy, I think that it is really important to understand that ethical project and to articulate one that is different, that is competing with that idea, um, but which has as much of a, a resonance uh, uh, for um, creating a kind of centralized social system as, as that does. It's not enough to simply critique that and say it's bad. There has to be a competing vision uh, that, that, uh, that can uh, counter such a central market-based project. To close out, I want to turn back to, to student debt and ask about its politics. Bernie Sanders in 2016 made free college and university, free public college and university, one of the most popular political demands of that year. And on one level, it's pretty obvious why it was so popular. So many young people owe so much. But I wonder, do you think that it also resonated so profoundly also on, on a deeper level because it holds out some hope for to people for decommodifying lives that have become so chained by financial constraints? I think that the promise of it is really quite profound, um, and I think that it has to do with um, the possibilities of the of the future. Um, I mean, I think that 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 yes, you're you're right that uh, that that free college, um, you know, and and what that means um, was and and remains somewhat ambiguous. But the idea of free college uh, does have that that resonance of 
decommodifying um, something that has been organized around price. That we that saying that we shouldn't be thinking of higher education as a commodity, as a good with a price tag, but that we should be thinking about higher education in moral ways that are different from that, that are about valuing uh, valuing ideas, about valuing citizenship, and, and honestly, again, about valuing whatever this future is that our young people are going to make, making that, that future possible for them and, and for ourselves. So I think that that promise is extremely resonant. And I think that, that the, uh, the, the demand and the movements that have sprung up around student debt and around student finance uh, have really made some inroads. I think that we see that today in the New York State Excelsior program, which um, is designed to make uh, college tuition at New York State universe, public universities uh, free for families uh, who make under $125,000. And I think that we see that today in the University of Michigan's Go, Go Blue guarantee that that has the same promise for, uh, for students whose families make uh, Michigan median uh, income or below, which is about $65,000. So I think that there are some real advances that have been made um, because, uh, because this promise that, that you're identifying is so strong that, that, that politically there is a, a strong desire to, to be honoring uh, values that are other than market values but which are still centrally American values that we want to see the political system recognizing, valorizing, and uh, helping us achieve. Caitlin Zaloom, thank you so much. Thank you. Caitlin Zaloom is a cultural anthropologist at NYU and the author of Out of the Pits, Traders and Technology from Chicago to London. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, noting that with the growth of material wealth, the class of money capitalists grows. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, mostly twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends and family about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please find us on Patreon.com and make a contribution to keep this operation running. Even a few bucks is a big help.